Well, let's turn now to to Third John, where we read a few minutes ago this very short letter, the third letter of John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be well in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, and so on. Now this morning we looked at Second John, also beginning with the elder writing to the elect lady. And as, we, as you recall, um, those of you who were here this morning recall that um, there is uh, uh, an idea that that was written to a church rather to an, than to an individual and that it's somewhat a coded reference to the church, possibly due to the danger in those days of uh, uh, letters falling into the wrong hands, uh, the Roman authorities and uh, some persecution that might indeed break out then against people for openly living as Christians. In any case, we saw that uh, that letter, the, uh, the second letter, was, if we take it, that it was written to uh, a group of Christians or to a church. This one certainly, third John, is written to the man called the beloved Gaius. So this is written to an individual, but there are also other individuals mentioned, as we'll see in the letter. And as we saw, Second John, one of the main features of Second John, was saying to those that were written to that they were not to welcome or give support to traveling heretics, people who were deceivers that had gone out into the world and that they had to watch themselves. They'd be careful to look after themselves against such false teachings and those people who denied the coming of Christ in the flesh, humanity of Jesus, or whatever fundamental truth of Jesus was being denied, uh, such a one as the deceiver and the antichrist. And so he was warning them uh, against um, uh, receiving that sort of teaching, but also, uh, also later on, anyone who comes to you and does not bring this teaching about Jesus uh, being God and, uh, and the teaching that uh, uh, has both God the Father and the Son, he says, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting. So the first epistle has to do, the first letter really has to do with not receiving those uh, peddlers, those disseminators of false doctrine, of untruth, those deceivers, those who are the Antichrist. Don't give them any encouragement, he's saying. Don't support them. Don't even show any semblance of support to them. When you come to Third John, he turns things around the other way. Because now he's talking about traveling Christians. Christians who are going from place to place. We'll see that they're probably missionaries. We can give them that word. They're certainly going out with the gospel and proclaiming the gospel or testifying to the gospel. And what he's emphasizing here in this letter is they are, uh, that they are actually to give them support, every support they can that they are to actually see it as something worthy of their support, that those who are traveling about with, uh, in the name of Jesus, with the gospel of Jesus, that they actually have to give them the support that will further enhance the gospel and support these people as they go about with the gospel. And conveniently, the letter divides itself really into three. When it mentions three names, Gaius, the man that is particularly written to, uh, by the elder whom we take to be the Apostle John. And then he speaks, secondly, about this man Diotrephes, a very different character, as we'll see, to Gaius. 
And then very briefly he mentions Demetrius too in verse 12 who has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. So we're going to work our study tonight round these three individuals and pick up a few points of what's said about each of them. There's not much actually anyway, certainly not about Demetrius. Um, and we'll see that the points that are referred to there, the points that are, uh, that are brought out about each of them, are important for ourselves. Because, as we said this morning, we, we can look at these two epistles, like much of the New Testament, as a glimpse into, or a look into life in a First Testament setting, a First uh, Century uh, first century New Testament setting rather uh, so we're looking at life in a first century church even if we take it the first one was written to an individual as this one is nevertheless it opens up for us what life in the church something of what life in the church was like and you can add that to the other epistles in the New Testament to add to what you find here of course so we're dividing it into these three points the beloved Gaius the one we'll call the bully Diotrephes and the, the faithful Demetrius who has a good testimony well the beloved Gaius is the man that John is here writing to the elder to the beloved Gaius and we saw in the second letter this morning how this wonderful combination of truth and love is uh, spoken about in different ways and that's the same sort of thing that you find here as well the elder whom uh, the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth and then he says in verse 3 I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth he mentions then the joy that he has in that one. When he says the elder to the beloved Gaius, that word beloved there is literally the well-beloved. And it fits in with the testimony that he has. This is a man who is highly respected, a man who is highly respected by others besides the elder John that is writing to him, who's writing to him. And the word well-beloved means the extent of the appreciation for this man in the church of the time. Something that we ourselves, of course, would want to actually follow and be known for. That we would have um, this kind of reputation where we are highly respected for the truth's sake. And highly respected for the work that we do for the Lord Jesus. Whatever kind of work that is. That it's faithful to Christ himself and to his standards. Well, that's the kind of man this was. And this word, well-beloved, describes very briefly how highly respected, how widely respected and loved he was as a Christian. But then he goes on to speak of him as beloved to himself. That's to John the Elder. This word beloved in verse 2 is really making it very personal because he's now speaking to him personally from his own standpoint as the Elder, the Apostle. He's well beloved, he's widely respected, but now he's saying, personally, I love you too. You are beloved of me. You have my affection as a fellow Christian. What he's saying is, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. Now, we haven't got time to go into every single detail in the letter, though it is very short. There's a lot in it that we could bring out that we have to um, actually just leave for this particular study. But he's saying there, it's important that we notice that he's concerned for the bodily, for the physical health and mental health of this man who is beloved by him, this Gaius. Before he goes on to speak about him spiritually, he actually says, as I pray that you may be in good health. 
And that's of concern to us all as well, of course. It's important that we pray for good health, that we pray for um, the kind of health that would enable us to go on serving the Lord for as long as the Lord himself will allow that, for the Lord himself has appointed all things for us in this life. But this is what he's saying. I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So all round he's wanting this Gaius to know soundness, to know health, to know well-being, bodily, physically, and spiritually. But you see, he's also saying here in verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Now, literally, it doesn't come across all that well in the ASV here uh, when it says your truth. If you go to the older version, the Gallic version as well, the translation is um, when they actually testified to the truth that is in you. That makes a bit of a difference, doesn't it? Because he's talking here not just about the truth about Gaius, He's talking about the truth that is in Gaius. He's talking about God's truth, the truth of Jesus, the truth of Christ. And he's saying that this was something that he rejoiced in greatly when the brothers came and testified to the truth that was in him. And before he goes on to speak about Gaius walking in the truth, he he makes a reference here to the truth that is in him. And that's the order in which things must be found in your own life and in mine. We're not going to be walking in the truth until, first of all, the truth is in us. It's as the truth actually is in us and in our souls that we are then living by it. You're not living by the truth by a mere outward conformity to it. That would, in a sense, be hypocrisy, even if it matches up with outwardly what the truth requires. What John is saying here is, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to the truth that is in you, even as also indeed you are walking in the truth. In other words, this is a man who has uh, really what is in him matches exactly what is seen outwardly in his life. And isn't that how you want to be yourself and myself? Uh, you don't want to be known as someone in whom there is a separation or a dissonance between what is being uh, testified outwardly, what is being claimed outwardly, and what is actually true inwardly. You want your life to have in your soul, in your inward being, the same as what is seen outwardly and vice versa. And here is a man who has an exact match of belief and conduct. What is in him, what is being seen done by him, and in his manner of life. And that's really, essentially, what a Christian is. A Christian is not somebody who just conforms to a creed outwardly, to a set of rules and do's and don'ts, and who's able to tick the boxes, I believe this and I believe that. Yes, I believe this about Jesus. I believe this about God. I believe this about the Christian life. And you can tick all these boxes outwardly, and I'm sure everybody here could do that. But no, this man, Gaius, yes, he can do that. Uh, but he also has inwardly the belief, the conviction, the, uh, the uh, assent to this truth and the acceptance of this truth as truth for him truth for his way of life. We've been talking about truth quite a bit the last couple of weeks, last 
Lord's day from the way the truth was depicted in Isaiah as having fallen in the street, the very sad spectacle of uh, truth as it's personified there. We'll try to refer that briefly to our own generation, to what you find in our own day, that truth is at such a discount that you can really say pretty much that it's fallen in the street, it's collapsed. And so many other things collapsed because of that. And here is John saying, this man Gaius is a very different person to those that don't really hold to the truth inwardly and don't live by the truth. As a man who has a matchup between his belief and his conduct. Now we've heard, we've heard in verse 4, um, to verse 4 this morning, there's a similar verse uh, in the previous letter where it speaks there about rejoicing. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth in verse 4 uh, and here in verse uh, for as well you find I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now he means here his children are those under his care those under his pastoral care and that is something that those of us who have positions of leadership in the church not just as ministers but also as elders we are particularly um, concerned for those under our care and this is our burden this is our burden that they would be seen walking in the truth that they would be seen following Christ and there's no greater joy for us than to hear that those under our care are walking in the truth you know when somebody walks into that session room and says I want to take communion I really want to come to the Lord's table for the first time how do those elders react well, if you've never been there, I counsel you to come and see for yourself. But I can tell you how they react. They react with great joy. Sometimes even the tears flow from our faces. Because we see people coming in there and saying, I'm testifying to the truth that's in my heart, not in my own self-confidence, but this is what Jesus has done for me. And their way of life confirms that. Very few of them, if any, are ever surprises to us when they come, when you've come to actually present yourselves for communion, to want to take communion. It's very, very seldom a surprise to us who are leaders in the church to see these people you, yourselves who have come for this privilege. Because we've seen things in your life and we've seen changes in your life and we've seen the truth taking root in your soul and we've seen the effects of that and the fruit of that in your outward life. That's what makes you a Christian. Born again inwardly. The truth that is in you. And it's seen outwardly in your outward conduct. And there's rejoicing over that. There's joy in respect to that. We have no greater joy than to hear our children walking in the truth. And as I mentioned this morning, it's also a source of great sadness to us when we see people turning their back to the truth walking away from the truth not wanting any more to follow in the steps of the truth just as Jesus saw many disciples that's what they were called they were followers outwardly in John chapter 6 that's what you find Jesus saying when the teaching of Jesus became too much and too demanding for them they, they turned away and they walked no more with him and he turned to the twelve the disciples the twelve disciples and he said to them, do you also, will you also go away? Do you also want to go away? And that's a question that always comes to ourselves, isn't it? And a question that you and I must always put to ourselves. Whatever it is that's troubling us, do we want to walk away from the truth? 
however convincing arguments in the world and in atheism may seem to be, however confident they may seem to have uh, to be and have confidence in their own uh, way of presenting the alternative to God's truth in the scriptures, in the gospel, do you want to go away from the truth? That's the, that's the challenge. Do you want to keep walking in the truth? And of course, the answer to that surely would always, you'd always want to be, yes, I do want to keep walking in the truth. I don't want to go away from the truth. And you ask for God to help you to keep walking in the truth. You know, because walking away from God is walking away towards death. The further away from God you are, the further distant you are from life. When Adam went to hide himself in the trees of the garden and Eve, when they went away from God, seeking to hide from God, they were really saying essentially, their life was then showing essentially, that they were walking away from life. Walking away from the source of life. And you remember what's said of Cain when God came to put a mark of his judgment upon him for the murder of his brother Abel. Cain's reference to that to the Lord as he spoke to the Lord. And when the Lord banished him to another land, went and dwelt in the land of Nod. Cain has said, my burden is more than I can bear. And he went away from the presence of the Lord. See, when you go away from the truth, you're setting yourself on a course away from the presence of the Lord. And I hope that's not true of anyone here, of course. But there are some for whom, sadly, temporarily at least, they turned from the truth. And you know, there's nothing greater than seeing people walking in the truth. The only thing I would say rivals that for a source of joy is to see people who had gone away from the truth but have come back and have repented and have recommitted themselves and their lives to Jesus. What a source of joy that is. What a great source of confidence in the Word of God that is to those of us who preach it. So he's saying uh, that he's rejoicing that he knows of Gaius walking in the truth. But then he says... The other thing he says about him, not just walking in the truth, that he's also in the business of welcoming these brothers, these uh, strangers, as he puts it there in verse 5. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles, Therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Now let's just take a few points out of that. Because here is John saying to Gaius, this is really a faithful thing that you're doing, that you're welcoming these brothers, these strangers. The same people are described by the word strangers and brothers. They are, they are traveling Christians. They are people who are going from one place to the other and going from one group of Christians to the next bringing Christian teaching bringing Christian encouragement and from that point of view you could call them missionaries and you can see that they have actually this role in the church of the time because he says they uh, have gone out for the sake of the name they have gone out they've they've, uh, gone on the specific task for the name and the name there means Jesus but it came to mean the gospel, the cause of Christ. You go back to the book of Acts in chapter 5, 
verses 40 to 42, you'll find that by that stage, um, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the reference to him there had been shortened to the name. And then it had come to represent the way of the gospel, the way of salvation that's tied up with the name of Jesus. And of course you remember that in the Old Testament, uh, very often you find the name of God, the name of Jehovah, the name of the Lord. And that's really a way in the New Testament of uh, one way at least of, of showing the deity of Christ, that he himself has the name and the things that are attached to him are attached to him as God, as God in the flesh, as God the Son. But he says in verse chapter 5 of Acts there, these people were beaten by the authorities of the time. They were lashed. They were badly treated. Grievously treated. What does that say? It says when they were released from custody, that they counted it an honor to suffer shame for the name. Isn't that brilliant? They counted it an honor to suffer shame for the name, for Jesus and for his cause. Would I do that tonight? If I was thrown into prison tonight, if I was in a situation where I would be locked up for what I believe and for the life that I want to live in faithfulness to Jesus, if you were in that situation tonight, would you count it a badge of honor? Would I count it something to be really... Um, to be really proud about in the best sense, if you like, of the word. Well, that's what these uh, disciples, that's what these apostles actually thought. They thought it an honorable thing to suffer for the name that is Jesus and his gospel. What a great challenge that is to ourselves when we suffer, most of us at least much less than that. There are Christians tonight in North Korea and Pakistan and other places in the world who very much fit into the mindset of Acts chapter 5 verses 40 to 42. They know what it is to suffer for the name but they count it an honor. It's a badge of honor for them. And so the name is something that Gaius here was actually working for or faithful to and uh, was actually uh, for the sake of the name he was looking after those people who had gone out for the sake of the name it all comes together it's for the name of Jesus for the reputation of Jesus that Gaius was looking after these strangers these traveling missionaries who themselves had gone out for the name for the sake of the name and look at what it, when he says in verse 8 therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth well, he's, that we in the text is actually very emphatic. Therefore, we ought to support. Now, he's going on to speak about someone who's very different to that. But before we come to that, this emphasis is important. We ought to support people like these. Missionary endeavor, missionary projects, missionary labors, missionary activity has to be supported. Who's going to support it? The church must support it. We as Christians must support it. You actually don't go and decide or say the Lord is actually calling us to do some mission work in some particular part of the town or in some new area of housing or whatever it might be 
but we're going to the world for our support. We're going to the world for our financial support of that project. No, he's saying, we have to support that. We're serving this Lord. We're doing this for the name. And uh, when he says that, um, notice he's saying in verse 5, what you're doing is doing a faithful thing. And uh, uh, in verse 6 he's, you're doing well if you send them on their journey. A faithful thing means a thing that proceeds from your faith. Gaius was not doing this just because somehow or other he felt sorry for these people or because he was forced into it. Gaius was doing this because he was a believer, because his faith in Jesus Christ flowed out into the support of missionary activity. That's what he's saying when he's saying, it is a faithful thing that you're doing in your efforts to welcome and to give hospitality to these people and to support these Christians who are traveling. This is a faithful thing that you're, it's an expression of your faith, this support is. And when he goes on to speak about being a beautiful thing, doing well in verse 6, that's literally what it means. You will do well to send them on their journey. Literally, in the text, that's what it really means in Greek. This word means something beautiful. You will do something beautiful to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In a way that supports their enterprise, that supports their missionary activities, that supports the gospel. You remember the woman who came to Jesus and anointed him, broke that alabaster flask that she was carrying with all precious ointment that cost so much. When she broke it and anointed Jesus and the, the odor of that filled the room, some of the disciples were indignant, particularly Judas Iscariot. And Jesus intervened and said, Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. That's the word that's here. She has done a thing of beauty to me. You know, when you support the gospel as you are doing, when you support missionary activity as you are doing, whether it's locally or in foreign missions or supporting missionary work, wherever it is, you are doing a beautiful thing because you're anointing Christ by that. You are anointing the name of Christ. You're doing something beautiful in His sight. God sees it as something beautiful. You know, when you're looking at what seems a very uh, matter-of-fact thing, when you put your envelope in the plate, uh, when you pay by standing order, whatever it is, in financial support of the gospel, yes, we can look at that as just, it's a financial thing, it's a financial transaction, comes out of our account, whether it's by taking money and putting it in the envelope or otherwise. But you know, this is how we should look at it. It is a thing of beauty. It's a beautiful act. It's a thing that anoints Christ because it's for His sake. It's for the name. It's all to do with Him. Even the smallest act, the most mundane act, something the world might even see as trivial. Didn't Jesus Himself say, whoever gives even a drink of cold water to the least of these disciples is doing it unto me? thing of beauty. And you know, when we get into our minds, this idea of our service for the Lord being a thing of beauty, a thing that has beauty in the presence of God, in the estimation of God, well then you see, it follows that your delight is even more in doing it, when you see it as a beautiful thing. 
And then he says, so that you may be fellow workers for the truth. He's finishing off the point by saying this. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. That's what Christians are. When together they support the gospel, they become fellow workers for the truth. It's as if, it's as if, as if truth itself is really our employer. And that truth is the one we serve. We're serving God, of course, but if you personify truth as it is in God, you could say, well, that's really what you've got here. We are fellow workers for the truth, for the, uh, for the truth in whose employment we are. But you know, uh, truth is always advertising vacancies. Vacancies for other workers to join those who are already workers for the truth. Is that saying something to you tonight? Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you come to testify for Jesus? Have you come openly to say that He is your Lord? Are you still afraid of something that's keeping you back from doing that? Of beautifying the Lord by a further step of obedience to Him? Well, here is truth as the employer if you like of those who are working for the truth and there's an appeal on the part of that truth or that God of that Savior to you and to me tonight will you not fill this vacancy will you not come to be a fellow worker of the truth and for the truth will you not now come to stand alongside work alongside those who are servants of God Here's the beloved Gaius. He's well beloved. He's walking in the truth. He's welcoming the brothers, the strangers, the traveling Christians who are going around with the gospel. But secondly, and we're moving into a very different scenario, a very different uh, um, environment. Now as you come to um, verse 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. If I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. He was probably in the same church as Gaius. It appears from what uh, is said that uh, Gaius would certainly know him and know of his activities. So we're taking that he belonged to that fellowship of Christians uh, that Gaius himself belonged to as well. He certainly had some semblance of authority at least he was using authority whether it was given him by the church or not he was taking it upon himself to cast people out of the church to excommunicate them if you like in an official capacity whether it was official or not but you see what he's saying in verse 9 uh, John had written a letter which we don't have I don't think it's a second letter but he had written something to the church but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority it refused refused to accept the authority of John. He didn't accept that as in any way to control his mind or to control his uh, way of behavior. And uh, he rejected, he says, our authority. Uh, what was the problem with this man, Diotrephes, who was acting in such a, a bullying manner? Well, the problem for him, the root problem in his life, wasn't a social problem. It wasn't that he was a different category of of upbringing to Gaius, nothing like that is mentioned. 
It wasn't that there was a theological difference between them. It wasn't that this man Diotrephes was a heretic theologically. There's nothing like that either. It wasn't that he was of a different view ecclesiastically to the structure of the church or something like that. What was it about this man that, uh, that caused uh, the elder John to write this to him? It's quite simple. It was sin. He was in love with himself. He had an inflated ego. He had a much higher view of his own authority than he ought to have had. Isn't that what John is saying? Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, likes to have the preeminence. Something that's written to the Colossian church about Jesus, that he must have the preeminence. Well, this man Diotrephes doesn't want Jesus and doesn't want Gaius and doesn't want John to have the, the, the preeminence. He doesn't want to have Jesus first or them first ahead of him. So he doesn't acknowledge their authority. He just wants himself in charge. That's the root problem. He has too high a view of his own importance. He has an inflated view of his own authority, of his own importance. Now that's why you have in the qualifications for leadership in the church, in Paul's letters to Timothy and to Titus, I'm just going to read from Titus, but you notice how the features of it match up with um, what's lacking in Diotrephes' character and actions. Titus chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, where he says here, an overseer, that's an elder, must be, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. That's what's lacking in Diotrephes. He doesn't want to give hospitality to these traveling Christians. In other words, he goes on to say, Paul goes on to say, he must be a lover of good, must be self-controlled, must be upright, must be holy, must be disciplined, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine also, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What a different kind of person Diotrephes is to that and to Gaius, who is commended by John as he wrote to him in this letter. But not only does he dismiss the authority of John, it's worse than that. That's bad enough, but what else is he doing? He's saying, I will bring up what he's doing if I come. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. Talking wicked nonsense. What is that? It's slanderous untruth. This is a man who has some position in the church of Gaius's, in Gaius's time, in John's time, and yet this is what he is actually like. This is what John is writing about him. He is actually um, not just refusing his authority, but he's talking malicious, slanderous nonsense, untruth about him. Very likely, he's building up self-support. How does a man like this build up self-support? Well, he's not afraid of talking, gossiping, untruth about other people. He gets people onto his side by misrepresentation by not quite in get, giving the full picture to people, by keeping back some essential details, or even by just saying simply, simply saying things that are actually untrue altogether. That's his description. Talking wicked nonsense. 
And then he says he's refusing to welcome the brothers and also he stops those who want to do this and puts them out of the church. He's preventing others from following the guidance that Gaius is giving them. This model Christian, this example, and this man Diotrephes is determined to actually put people off from following that example by bullying them into supporting himself and by just putting them out of the church if they refuse to accept his so-called authority. Well, the church has had many disputes down the course of its history. Some of these have been major disputes over doctrinal difference, important doctrinal differences, whether it's the nature of Scripture, the person of Christ, the atonement. There have always been times when these differences became acute and when uh, these differences caused division and disruption and schism in the church. But many, many church disputes involve personal vanity. People not prepared to accept the authority of others. People not prepared to accept that actually their opinion is not more important than those of God and those of Jesus and those of other Christians. And that's why, as I remind you of this, I remind myself of it. The sixth question that's put to ministers before they're ordained or before they're reinducted to another charge is this. Do you promise to submit yourself willingly and humbly in the spirit of meekness to the admonitions of the brethren of this presbytery and superior judicatories of this church? And it goes on to say some other things, but I'll leave it there. That's the point we're making. Diotrephes may well have answered yes to that question, but he's not practicing it. He actually loves himself, loves his own authority, loves his own opinion, loves his own conclusions. And that's the result of it. He's causing havoc, he's causing chaos, he's causing disruption. And John is saying, if it is God's will that I come, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to deal with it as it needs to be dealt with. Meantime, he's saying, Beloved, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. As if he's just summarizing the difference between Gaius and Diotrephes. But then he makes, he makes, thirdly, he makes a reference, and it's another beautiful image again of Demetrius, has received a good testimony from everyone, and from the truth itself, we also add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. What are you saying? He has a good testimony from all, similar to Gaius himself, and even from the truth itself. And by, by that he means that uh, the truth itself and what it requires of the likes of Demetrius and Gaius is actually proved in the life of Demetrius. The testimony of the truth supports what Demetrius is and is doing. And also he says... We add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true, as he's talking of his own apostolic authority as an apostle of the church. It would appear that Demetrius perhaps was not known actually to Gaius. Um, he may well have been, as 
some commentators make out. He may have been the, the carrier or the bear deliverer of this letter. That's what usually happened in those days. Those who were writing these letters to the churches uh, made sure that uh, as far as possible they were delivered safely by the hand of somebody reliable. And of course somebody coming with a letter, uh, usually the letter needed to testify to the quality, to the dependableness of the person that was carrying it in order for that church or that group to be confident that this person really was safe to trust and that the letter was really genuinely what it purported to be. So he's saying here, you don't need to have any fears about Demetrius. He has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself and we add our testimony too. And as you come to the end of the letter, as you see these three individuals, two quite like each other, one very different, you find a glimpse into life in the first century church. And as you look at the church of our own day, and as you compare it with this, well, the thought that comes to mind is, well, so what's new? These problems have been around that you find in our own day the problems have been there from the beginning. There are always problems centered around human beings like myself and yourself. Human beings who have an ego, who need to curb that ego, and who sometimes forget that life's not all about our opinions and what our mindset is, and that others very often know better than we ourselves do. And how beautifully he concludes the letter. I hope he says to see you soon and we will talk face to face. And he says peace be to you. And then he finishes this way. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. What marvelous, beautiful ending to the letter. The friends are those that are known to the elder John that are sending their sentiments along with his in this letter to Gaius. Fellow Christians, fellow believers, different place in the world, but nevertheless, this is what he's saying, the friends greet you. And now he's saying, you also greet the friends, every one of them. Wherever you find them as faithful fellow believers, they are your friends. They are your beloved friends. And as friends of Christ, we are friends with one another. And there's something very, very special about meeting someone you've never met before, that you know is coming to visit you, whether it's Korea or Africa, wherever it is. And you know that he's a fellow believer or she's a fellow believer in Christ. And the moment you meet them, you know that, that you're friends and that they're friends of yours. And that friendship is very special in Christ. It be true of us here, this congregation, that whatever people know us as, they will know that we are friends of Jesus and that as friends of Jesus, we are friends of one another and that we are friends of Christians elsewhere who come for the name to serve this Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of having that information in your word of such principles and practices 
as were commended to your church long ago. We thank you for their abiding relevance to our own age. We bless you that that truth that was commended by John is the same truth that we value today. O Lord, help us to prize it, to live it out in our own lives, in our own context. We pray that we too may be walking in the truth on a daily basis. Help us, we pray, to do so consistently and faithfully. Help us, Lord, we pray, to know of that friendship with one another that is founded on the truth itself. Grant that we may never have a diotrophy spirit in ourselves or in our fellowship. Help us, Lord, to be loving and tactful and loving and careful, and yet nevertheless to be robust in our adherence to your truth, so that we may constantly give praise and glory to God and prove ourselves to be, Father, children of such a gracious Father. Hear us, we pray now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude our singing with our singing this evening of Psalm 147. Psalm 147. That's in the Sing Psalms version, page 192. This time singing to tune Crediton. And singing verses 11 to 15. Page 192. The Lord takes pleasure in his saints who worship him in fear. And those who trust his steadfast love will always find him near. Extol the Lord Jerusalem, Zion your God confess. He makes secure your city gates and those within he'll bless. The Lord will grant you peace within the borders of your land. And finest wheat will fill your fields from his sustaining hand. To all the corners of the earth the Lord's commands proceed. For when he speaks his word goes forth through all the world with speed. These verses to God's praise. The Lord takes pleasure in his
I'll go to the side door here to my right this evening. And now may grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be our portion now and evermore. Amen.